You have found Vegan Theology for the Least of These with Sarah Hale and Kevin Hale. Hey, what's going on? How are you, Kevin? Good, good. How many hours of work at your J-O-B did you put in this <laughs> week? Well, it's hard to believe. Just we calculated it. We came up with 80 hours, which I just find hard to believe. But <laughs> I don't. I know how much you're not here. No, and I know. How tired you are. So. Right. We bring that up only because this season, Kevin is working six days a week and over 12 hours every day. And so if, if you're listening to this podcast and you're noticing that Sarah's doing most of the talking, <laughs> but yeah, the reason is, is we are experiencing a season of Kevin just working a lot. That was one of the reasons why we decided to go through Andrew Lindsay's book, Animal Theology, this season. Yeah because it was just a little bit less, instead of us trying to come up with original content, it's very, it's a blessing to be able to go through somebody else's right. original content and then just discuss it. Of course, there's a lot of benefits for us Oh yeah. to going through this. Right. We're learning so much. And it's, like I said, it's pretty dense yeah. material, a lot Every of historical references, a lot of good stuff in there. Sorry to interrupt. No. Every chapter I find I find myself feeling surprised by what I'm reading. He brings up things I've never thought about before in ways I've never thought about them before. So, yeah, I am enjoying it immensely. I think we're definitely benefiting. Our theology is definitely benefiting from the work of Andrew Lindsay. Oh yeah. We're going way deeper. Well, let's just say the basic level you might learn in a seminary or Bible college, you know, that's the beginning and you really have to live your life and really think through your theology and what it means to you and how it develops. And, you know, a lot of things influence that, your life and just your values. And I, I would say, I think for us, we try to be holistic and we try to be consistent. And when you start looking at the Bible and your theology in a consistent way, and trying to incorporate all of creation, you know, certain consequences happen, certain results come from that. So, and, and yes, this is, he is diving into areas and terrain that I'll just say mainstream theology doesn't really get to. Mm -hmm. So it's good stuff. It's amazing. Yeah, we highly recommend Andrew Lindsay, and this book is... Animal Theology. Yeah. We are arriving now at chapter three. The title of the chapter is Humans as the Servant Species. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I wanted to draw out right from the beginning, which was one of the surprises, one of the pleasant surprises of this chapter, is that Lindsay quotes a fair amount of literature in this chapter, as in... He quotes from novels and several poems and short stories in this chapter, which I have not ever seen that in a theology book before. Yeah. It's so refreshing and it's so, it's just interesting. Right. There's a value of fiction. Theology, the study of God, can easily go into this very intellectual, rational realm that can sometimes feel very dry and very cold and clinical, sterile, which is unfortunate. It's one of the pitfalls, I think, that we have to avoid when we 
when we study theology because obviously if it's not reaching the heart, if it's not reaching the emotions and the passions of the human, there's something going wrong there. Right. Our relationship with God should not just be this mental exercise. You know, and we're very obviously very new to podcasting and one of the conversations we've had is that we don't want this theological podcast to feel very just clinical and intellectual and logical and and not have any heart in it. Right. And so the fact that Lindsay uses fiction in his theology to help embody it, to help give it flesh and bones. Right. Is oh, this is one way, one of probably several ways that we could think about making our podcast more from the heart. Right. I remember, too, we had a professor at Moody Bible, Dr. Rosalie DeRose, and she would make similar comments like this, that a lot of theologies were very sterile and maybe even clinical, like you're saying. And, and she was always drawing out books that embodied theology in such a way and told a story and just made it come alive. And she, I remember she taught a class called The Image of Christ in the Novel. And of course, we love that class and we still read books that were taught in that class. And one of our favorite books ever, fiction, is from that class. Several, including stuff from Flannery O'Connor and Edward Lewis Wallant and the list goes on. And it just reminds me, we happened to see maybe a few months ago a theologian, Karen Swallow Pryor, she came to Bozeman. She was giving a whole lecture on the Christian imagination, but she really, I guess, ignited, I think in both of us, some idea of using our Christian imagination, especially as it applies to the new creation. Let's think about that. Let's imagine what that's going to be like, and let's start talking about that using our Christian imagination. Yeah, I think there's a value in fiction, a value in story that embodied the gospel in a way that bypasses our logical, intellectual mind and actually just goes straight to the heart where real change happens. It reminds me, even when you're talking to someone about animals, right, or veganism, you can talk to them and give them statistics and all the data all day long, and they can decide that maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, but they don't they walk away feeling like unchanged whereas if you can get someone to watch dominion or any documentary where they're actually having to watch animals suffer that goes right past their intellect and right. goes right to their heart where the issue is often settled right then and there right i don't want to participate in anything that supports this there's something about story and and getting to the heart of the matter that really brings life change. Right. I think it's really interesting. A lot of our scriptures are in the form of narrative or poetry, even the, the parables of Jesus. And you'll notice that a lot of theologians and pastors, they don't spend a lot of time on those parts of scripture. They don't lend themselves to a, a nice three-point sermon outline like the epistles do. Right. But... Again, the stories are what actually captivate our heart and actually inspire us when we're going through hard times or when we're experiencing different aspects of life. It's the stories that we remember and inspire us. The fact that he includes so much fiction, he quotes from so much fiction, a lot of this I've never heard of. John Austin Baker's theological fantasy entitled Travels in Udamovia 
Helen Waddell's Peter Abelard, and then several poems, Joseph Plunkett, Edith Stilwell, Alexander Pope, and, and others. Hmm. There's a lot of fiction quoted in this chapter. That's awesome. It's very, very cool. But he opens this chapter, Humans as the Servant Species, once again wanting to come back to like, what are we going to do about the fact that the Christian traditional claim is that humans are unique above all of creation. So how, how can we really reframe that or deal with that. Let me read from the first paragraph of the chapter. He says, It is frequently maintained that animal rightists see no real difference between animals and humans and try to put both on the same moral or theological level. That is one of the major criticisms that Christians have against people who care about animals. Oh, you're trying to put animals on the same level as humans? And that sounds like heresy. Mm to our ears. But he goes on to say, but does it follow that to endorse the ethical treatment of animals requires an abandonment of the traditional Christian view that humans are special or unique? I do not think so. In what follows, I try to show how the view that humans are morally superior is actually central to good animal rights theory. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Drawing upon the idea of a God who suffers. I argue that human uniqueness can be defined as the capacity for service and self-sacrifice. So drawing on the idea of a God who suffers, human uniqueness can be defined as the capacity for service and self-sacrifice. From this perspective, humans are the species uniquely commissioned to exercise a self-sacrificial priesthood after the one high priest, not just for members of their own species, But for all sentient creatures, the groaning and travailing of fellow creatures requires a species capable of cooperating with God in the healing and liberating of creation. One of the many things that jumps out at me there is, yes, we are unique. We are special. We are the ones who are able, who have the capability of cooperating with God to heal and liberate creation. And I love that he's saying, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. The human species is unique in creation. You're absolutely right. And what are you unique to do? You are uniquely commissioned to sacrifice and to serve and to heal all of creation. Mm. The first subheading in this chapter is uniqueness spotting. And he criticizes how So much of Christianity has been devoted to defining and explaining and magnifying this uniqueness in humanity, that humans alone are capable of X, Y, Z. Humans alone have rationality or culture or language. Humans alone are self-conscious and are solely capable of sentient existence. And humans alone are capable of praising God and entering into a relationship with the divine. And right away, I just feel like, really? Are you sure that humans alone have rationality or culture or language or are self-conscious or capable of, of praising God? Just because we haven't 
wanted to prove those claims or maybe we're not capable sometimes of proving those claims doesn't mean that that is actually a true representation of animals. Well, that just reminds me, I think I mentioned I watched a PBS special on a naturalist that spent a year living with turkeys, and it's called My Life as a Turkey. It's amazing to watch. He makes the claim that, and they were in Florida, he makes the claim that when the turkeys happened upon a rattlesnake, the turkey made a very different vocalization compared to all other snakes. Mm -hmm. And they all knew exactly that it was a rattlesnake. Even he learned, knew that they found a rattlesnake compared to other, you know, more harmless snakes. Because he learned many of their different vocalizations for different things. Right. And they, so it was very interesting. So anyway, that's just one example. I know. One of many. This uniqueness spotting that has dominated Christian tradition for centuries has irritated one distinguished Hebrew scholar, James Barr, into denying that the notion of the image of God refers to anything tangible at all, referring to such attempts as the blood out of a stone process. More and more scholars are saying there is not something you could point to to say, ah, that's that's the image of God. That capability that humans have is what makes us unique and superior. There are at least three reasons why theology should be suspicious of this uniqueness spotting tendency. The first one is that A lot of these claimed differences between humans and animals have been proven that they're not true at all, that we're not so unique after all. Aquinas was a big proponent of this idea that only humans are capable of rationality or intelligence. And, of course, Descartes took that on and viewed animals as automata. Yeah. Did I say it right? I've heard different versions, but yeah. (laughs) Mechanisms devoid of self-consciousness and incapable of feeling pain. An unmistakable sense of caution in this regard is registered by former Archbishop Robert Runcy. He says, Both in theory and practice, the boundaries of the human family are becoming unclear. Behind practical dilemmas, there lies the theoretical difficulty of defining what it is that decisively distinguishes the human from the non-human a difficulty that increases as, for instance, naturalists detect in non-human creatures subtleties of behavior and complexities of communication, which until recently would have been thought unique and exclusive of humans. goes right back to what Kevin was saying about the naturalists who learn so much about the rich inner world of wild turkeys. It's easy to point to other mammals and find situations where we see them demonstrate self-sacrifice or grieving or having language or using tools. But you could point to other types of animals, birds, who have this language, like the turkeys. Or I just saw a video of crows. Crows, yeah, magpies, yeah. They were dropping rocks into a bottle of water to raise the level of water so they could reach it with their beaks to drink it. We've seen elephants grieve when one of their herd dies. We've seen, of course, dogs jump into the water when they think their owner is drowning. And even birds, how many times have there been stories of hens who call their chicks, and this is true of turkeys and lots of birds, they call their chicks under their wings to protect them from a predator or to protect them from a fire that's happening in the barn. They're willing to sacrifice themselves 
to save their their babies. So that's the first reason we should be suspicious of anything that claims that humans alone are unique in the eyes of God, is that a lot of these claims that have historically been used are just not even true. And then the second reason why we should be suspicious of this is because it's really a sign of our own insecurity. We realize that we are not as superior and moral and righteous and logical as we like to believe we are. And we have this insecurity about that, basically. He quotes from Desmond Morris, who wrote a book called The Naked Ape, which says that our desire to be placed above the animals is itself a sign of our insecurity. Our climb to the top has been a get-rich-quick story, and like all nouveau riche, we are very sensitive about our background. We are also in constant danger of betraying it. You know, sometimes people say the morals displayed by animals, challenges or rivals, the morals displayed by humans. Hmm. And then the third reason we should be suspicious of this uniqueness spotting is that the distinctions we have drawn have been frequently and transparently self-serving, even selfish. Basically, to believe that we're unique means that we get to do anything we want and it does not matter what we do. It's a justification for doing whatever we like to animals. You know, Aristotle again says, it is not wrong for a man to make use of animals either by killing them or in any other way whatever. I thought this was interesting. He says, the difference finding tendency in Western tradition has undoubtedly served to minimize the moral standing of non-human creatures and to enable us to exploit them with a clear conscience. I thought that was really interesting. The fact that our conscience is clear when we believe something. Our conscience can be fooled that way. Right. Yeah. This is kind of funny. He says, One cannot be but bemused by the reference in the marriage service of the Book of Common Prayer to, quote, brute beast that hath no understanding. Lindsay says, Since some, perhaps many, higher mammals seem to know more about monogamous relationships than at least some members of Homo sapiens. Wow. <laughs> And I would say not just higher mammals. I mean, we know, again, we know of bird species. Yeah, like who, swans, right? Who are monogamous, yeah. yeah. And here is where we get to the first quotation from a work of fiction. He takes a few paragraphs from that theological fantasy, Travels in Udamovia by John Austin Baker. Basically, as I understand it, and I'm very curious to read this book, in this land of Udamovia... Life and worship are characterized by a friendly, non-exploitative relationship with animals. It'd be very interesting to read. John Austin Baker says, The truth they strove to bring home was that the world God has given to his creatures, the one world which they have to share, is in fact a different world to each one of them, but that the world each creature knows is equally true. We human beings, superior as we are, ought to be very humble because other creatures have other truths which we can only dimly grasp, worlds we can never fully enter. And if this is so with regard to an ox or an ant, not to say a tree or a stone, how can we hope to comprehend the God who comprehends them all, to whom all worlds and truths are fully known 
because he made them. Each animal has their own understanding of the world and of God. And uh, understanding that we can only try to glimpse into. Right. But God understands all of those worlds. We are not God. The Homo sapiens species is not God. And just because we don't see something or apprehend it right. or have broken the code on it right. doesn't mean it's not valuable right. or real. Well, that's the thing, too, right? I know, I don't know if I mentioned this in this podcast, but you know, we know that birds, they can see certain color frequencies that humans cannot. And I think that's fascinating. And I remember thinking, oh, we'll just, uh, we'll just try to emulate those colors in like a digital form. Well, guess what? We're still not going to be able to see them. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we're not going to be able to manufacture those color frequencies because our eyes are incapable of seeing those. Anyway, that's just one idea. So no, no, no matter what we do, there's something that's unattainable to us that is attainable to them. Right. And we won't be able to experience it the way they do. Maybe in the new creation, but... Um, yeah, no, not now. So that's just one example, and there's so many examples that we're learning and discovering about animals. Oh, yeah. Like, isn't it octopi who can taste with their suckers? And yeah. Their experience of the world is completely different than anything we can even imagine. Right. So Lindsay says, we need to come up with a theology, and here's my criteria. We need to maintain that humans are unique, but in a way that avoids the suspicion and dangers of self-service insecurity and moral denigration of what is different and at the same time it needs to be reconcilable with empirical evidence so these are the criteria with which he strives to build this theology and where he goes next is the suffering god which again i did not see that coming you know, when I was thinking, I was reading a book about animal theology and how God cares for animals and we should care for animals. I didn't think we were going to get into the idea of the suffering God. Lindsay begins this part of the chapter subtitled The Suffering God first by saying, I begin by laying some stress on this word theological. Many of the previous claims for human uniqueness have been essentially naturalistic rather than theological. I mean by this that they have appealed to certain abilities, qualities, or capacities such as rationality or power or self-consciousness, which are taken as determinative of what is uniquely human. Such attempts are not theological in the strict sense of being things which are grounded in the nature of God itself. Despite the traveler in Udomovia's not wholly unjust complaint that our understanding of God is even less adequate than our understanding of the life of our cat, it is here that there may be a way forward. I like that quote. I think part of our problem as humans is we we look at animals through the human lens, right? Mm. Like, well, I can't understand their language. I can't understand their rationality. Therefore, it must not exist. We value our perspective and our understanding so much that if we can't fathom what's going on in the animal world, it just must not matter, right? Or not exist. Or not exist. Right. Sometimes we do the same thing to God. We basically put our attributes onto God instead of remembering 
we can't comprehend God. God is other. God is not human. <laughs> this whole chapter is a good reminder that our perspective is not the, the only capital T truth. Right. It's just our perspective. And we need to have some humility around that. And this is where Lindsay goes into a story by Helen Waddell called Peter Abelard. I'm just going to read part of what he quotes from that story. My God, said Tybalt, what's that? From somewhere near them in the woods, a cry had risen, a thin cry of such intolerable anguish that Abelard turned dizzy on his feet and caught at the wall. It's a child voice, he said. Oh, God, are they a child? A rabbit, said Tybalt. He listened. There's nothing worrying it. It'll be a trap. Hugh told me he was putting them down. Christ, the scream came yet again. Abelard was beside him, and the two plunged down by the bank. Oh, God, Abelard was muttering. Let it die. Let it die quickly. But the cry came yet again. On the right this time, he plunged through the thicket of hornbeam. Watch out, said Tybalt, thrusting past him. The trap might take the hand off you. The rabbit stopped shrieking when they stooped over it, either from exhaustion or in some last extremity of fear. Tybalt held the teeth of the trap apart, and Ebelard gathered up the little creature in his hands. It lay for a moment, breathing quickly, then in some blind recognition of the kindness that it met at the last, the small head thrust and nestled against his arm, and it died. It was that last confiding thrust that broke Abelard's heart. He looked down at the little draggled body, his mouth shaking. Tybalt, he said, do you think there is a God at all? Whatever has come to me, I earned it. But what did this one do? Tybalt nodded. I know, he said. Only, I think God is in it, too. Abelard looked up sharply. In it? Do you mean that it makes him suffer the way it does us? Again, Tybalt nodded. Then why doesn't he stop it? I don't know, said Tybalt. Unless, unless it's like the prodigal son... I suppose the father could have kept him at home against his will, but what would ha have been the use? All this, he stroked the limp body, is because of us. But all the time, God suffers more than we do. That is what Christ's life was, the bit of God that we saw. And we think God is like that because Christ was like that, kind and forgiving sins and healing people. We think God is like that forever because it happened once with Christ, but not the pain, not the agony at least, at the last. We think that stopped. Then Tybalt, he said slowly, if you think that all this, he looked down at the quiet little body in his arms, all the pain of the world was Christ's cross? God's cross, said Tybalt, and it goes on. The Patropassian heresy, muttered Abelard mechanically, but, oh, God, if it were true, Tybalt, it must be. At least there is something at the back of it that is true. And if we could find it, it would bring back the whole world. The point then, so ably narrated, this is Lindsay talking, by Waddell, is this. God suffers. Yeah, yeah that's very interesting. That resonates with something I was reading 
Well, one, we looked up the word passibility to reacquaint ourselves with it in a uh, theological dictionary, in this case, the Westminster Dictionary of Theological Terms. And the word passibility, it comes from the Latin word passibilis, which means suffering. And obviously it looks like it's got a root with paschal and passion and these kinds of things. It means able to undergo suffering or pain, able to be changed by an external power. A theological question relates to the view that God suffers or endures pain. Some contemporary theologians have favored this view, which was rejected by the early church. See, Patripassianism, which Sarah had mentioned. And then, you know, I was just curious. I went and found an article, um, and there's a journal out there that's worth your time if you ever wanted to go take a look on Google. It's now the custodians of this journal is the Gospel Coalition. It's called Themelios, or Themelios. And that looks like a Greek word, means foundation. And this used to be known as the TSF Bulletin or the Theological Student Fellowship Bulletin. I believe it was out of England. And somewhere in 2008, the Gospel Coalition took that over and renamed it to the Melios. Anyway, there's a great article by Richard Bachman. It's called Only the Suffering God Can Help, Divine Passibility in Modern Theology. And what's interesting in reading this article, and by the way, I'll put this, I'll put this article in the podcast notes so you can check it out for yourself. It's well, it's well documented. But what's interesting, again, we've talked about Greek influence in our theology, and the early church fathers dealt with this. But then what's interesting, there was a resurgence of this divine passibility or the suffering of God in England in around the uh, 1890s and onwards. A lot of English theologians picked this up. And so it's just interesting to me that Andrew Lindsay is probably very familiar with Mm-hmm. this idea of divine passibility just because it, he's probably within that tradition, I'm guessing. Um, yeah, and he says near the end of the chapter, he he used to be very much against this idea of the passibility mm-hmm. of God, which, I again, I love about Andrew Lindsay that he's willing to admit. Yeah, I used to defend that this was a heresy, right? and and now I've, I've completely changed my, right. my thinking. And that's true of all of us, right? If you really examine your theology, you probably it probably will change, mm. uh, especially when you start thinking about consistency. Anyway, um, what's interesting, though, like I mentioned the Greek, the Greek thinkers and the Greek influence. As I'm reading this article, I'm seeing, there again, there's this Greek influence where the Greeks thought that God, kind of what you're saying, holy other, I mean, Karl Barth used the term holy other, that God is so transcendent, separate from us. And with that, the Greeks believed that God was so perfect and he was so self-sufficient and all these various attributes that he could not be affected upon by the external world. Therefore, God could not suffer because nothing could affect him. And, and, and that even, that in essence, created a very sterile God, a very stoic God. Well, they, they even call it apathetic. Apathetic, yeah, they use the term apathetic, correct. And then somewhere along the way, theologians kind of wrestle with this, especially as a result of the, the First World War. And we, we know if you, if you read any uh, church history, you find that a lot of theologians changed their views on a lot of things after the First World War. And Karl Barth came out of that. His theology is, is highly influenced by the First World War. Same for uh, Jürgen Moldmann. And 
What's interesting is, you know, then they take on the word pathos, but then some will, uh, and Moltmann being one, and there was also a, a, a Jewish theologian named Abraham Heschel, and Moltmann kind of picked his thought up, and it's this sense of, instead of divine suffering, it's this, there's this idea of concern, this hmm. ultimate concern, or, or he uses the term infinite concern, that God is concerned with us. God is concerned with suffering. And if he, I hate to use the word choose, but if he chooses to participate in that suffering with us, which the cross of Christ, right? Mm-hmm. That is the ultimate participation of God in humanity. And, and you know, there are different arguments there. This is, and the Trinity comes into this whole thing where some will say, yeah, of course Christ in his physical body suffered, but the Logos, the divine part of Christ, did not suffer. And so there are arguments back and forth, but I think the ultimate idea that I came away with, and it's kind of what you're saying right here, what, what Lindsay has just said, is that, and if you really think about this, and again, I would, I would recommend reading this article, it's quite fascinating, that there's this passion involved, and there's this with suffering, and there's a sense of love. And if you love something or someone, there's going to be suffering because of the broken world we're living in. Mm. And it's almost like when we say God is love, mm. that means God suffers. And I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying this. This is very summary, summary view right now. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not doing the article any justice, but I just was fascinated by that, that. I'm fascinated as well. And this is a new concept for me. This is a new term. I've never thought through this. So I'm just beginning right. to think through this. So I, I certainly don't have my head around it. Right. And it also plays into the problem of evil, which I think eventually mm-hmm. we're going to talk about in this podcast, which I don't really want to talk about because <laughs> it's so difficult and complex. We have to we have to deal with it. Yeah. It, it seems like it really sheds a new light on the problem of evil. It does. But just the idea that when we say God is love, that God suffers yeah. because he, you can't love something without suffering. And you just think about that in terms of marriage, in terms of losing a loved one, in terms of mm-hmm. anything. You know, when, when God the Father gave up his son to sacrifice for us, you could say, you could argue, some say that the Father suffered and then Christ himself suffered, especially when they were separated. And mm-hmm. then the, the, the Holy Spirit bound it all together, you know, in love. Like I said, very quick overview, but there's more to be understood here for sure. And, I can sympathize why this was deemed a heresy because it seems to lose sight of the idea of divine omnipotence or divine transcendence. Right. It, it seems to compromise God's qualities in some way. Yeah. But Lindsay says what Kevin already said, God's self-definition in Jesus Christ leads inescapably to the view that God really and truly enters into suffering. This seems to me to be required by a fully incarnational theology in which God actually does what is claimed, namely enter into the awfulness of the human condition. Mm. He goes on, but like Tybalt in the story, I want to go further. If it is true that God is the creator and sustainer of the whole world of life, then it is inconceivable that God is not also a co-sufferer in the world of non-human creatures as well. Years of Christian tradition have obscured this basic implication of the gospel narrative. Lindsay goes on, and yet the idea that God is affected by the suffering of all creatures 
has not been lost on generations of saints and poets. Quote, here I saw the great unity between Christ and us, writes Julian of Norwich. For when he was in pain, all creatures able to suffer pain suffered with him. It is written of Marjorie Kemp that when she saw a crucifix or if she saw a man had a wound or a beast or if a man beat a child before her or smote a horse or another beast with a whip, she thought she saw our Lord beaten and wounded. Perhaps the best-known expression of this idea is in poetry is found in Joseph Plunkett's I See His Blood Upon the Rose. Lindsay quotes Joseph Plunkett's poem called I See His Blood Upon the Rose. I see his blood upon the rose, and in the stars the glory of his eyes. His body gleams amid eternal snows, his tears fall from the skies. I see his face in every flower. The thunder and the singing of the birds are but his voice, and carven by his power rocks are his written words. All pathways by his feet are worn, his strong heart stirs the ever-beating sea. His crown is twined with every thorn. His cross is every tree. I love that. The idea that everything we see reminds us of Jesus and his suffering and his sacrifice for us. Lindsay says, This imaginative picture of Christ suffering all pain and violence in the universe that God has made conveys, it seems to me, a truth which has simply eluded the formal theorists and dogmaticians of the Christian tradition, namely that God is suffering with creation. He says, but this splendid example, I fear, is one of the comparatively few exceptions to an otherwise almost wholly monolithic anthropocentrism of East and West. The recognition that suffering exists in the non-human world requires us to grapple with the problem of redemption for these spheres as well. If it is believed in fidelity to the gospel story that God truly enters into creaturely suffering, then there can be no good reason for excluding God's suffering presence from the realm of the non-human creation as well. Indeed, quite the reverse. For the issue is not how much suffering or to what degree any being suffers, but that it suffers at all which is the underlying fact to be wrestled with. If, as Bonhoeffer once remarked, only a suffering God can help, it must follow that where there is suffering, no matter whatever the kind and to what degree, God suffers too. Hmm. After I read that paragraph, I was actually grocery shopping <laughs> at Costco. <laughs> <laughs> and anytime I walk through their enormous meat department, right or walk by their big room of dairy and eggs, those mountains and mountains of flesh, just row upon row upon row of, right. of animal flesh. It always hurts my heart. But for the first time, I actually thought, oh, God suffers for this as well. Right. I'm not alone in this suffering. This hurts God, too. It's a really new way of looking at it. Yeah. So at this point, you might be... A little unclear as I, as I process this chapter, I'm starting to become more and more clear. But at first, it was very, like, what what does God's suffering have to do with our theology about animals? And then I got to this sentence in the chapter. He said, 
only the most tenacious adherence to the passibility of God may be sufficient to redeem us from our own profoundly arrogant humanistic conceptions of our place in the universe. Mm. I, st- I started trying to break that down. Only if we really start believing that God suffers with the animals, that it might wake us up, that might be sufficient. That shift in our theology that God is suffering might be sufficient to wake us up, take away, burn away some of our own arrogance Mm. and our place in the universe is that we're all that matters to God. Right. Because God is actually suffering with the animals. Mm. Yeah, that's very profound. I mean, to really think about that sentence, because I know in America, I can only really, we can really only speak about America. Yeah, we're so removed from the slaughtering process, from the slaughterhouse, from everything that happens. And you, like you said, you go to Costco and there's this nice packaged meat without the blood and without all the mm-hmm. everything that makes up what an animal is. And we are so far removed. It's so sterile. It's so clean. We just buy our packaged animal products and just move on. And and yet we don't care. There's this lack of empathy. There's this mm. apathetic. We don't care. We just we just think about the taste mm. and what we're gonna do with and make this amazing meal that tastes wonderful for our family or our friends or whatever. And God is suffering. God is over here suffering and we're not. Yeah. At this. And I find that fascinating because guess what? Maybe we should be suffering more. It's almost like we're, we've set up the world with this entitlement that allows us to be apathetic. We, th- we think that's like an attribute of our superiority, that we can be untouched by the suffering. Right. We put these blinders on and become unaware, consciously and willfully ignorant, and yet God doesn't. Right. God is there with the animals. It reminds me, in our church, we light the Christ candle at the beginning of the service and say, you know, light of Christ, shine on us. And then at the end of the service, when we extinguish the light, we say the same Christ who is here with us in this place at this time is in all places at all times. We can choose to not be at the slaughterhouse. God is there with those animals. God is in all places at all times. Becoming aware of that, really thinking about that, that God is in those places, God is with those animals, God is suffering with them, that might be what it takes for us to wake up from our, it might be what it takes for us to take off our blinders. Right. Well, this is what I think, too. We, we keep, we've used the term that we're image bearers, that we bear the image of Christ. We're God's viceroys on this planet. And if we're not suffering over this, and He is then how well are we representing? Hmm. You know what I mean? Lindsay ends this chapter with a quote from Albert Schweitzer, who we talked about in the first chapter. Awesome guy. Schweitzer wrote, I could not but feel with a sympathy full of regret all the pain that I saw around me, not only that of men, but that of the whole creation. From this community of suffering, I have never tried to withdraw myself. It seemed to me a matter of course that we should all take our share of the burden of suffering which lies upon the world. We as priests, the sacrificial priests, 
of this creation, we don't have the luxury of turning away and being shut off and closed off and ignorant of the suffering that's going on in the world. We have to be suffering with creation. Active participants. And, and I think the idea here, right, is if we're suffering, it's going to change our view of us. It's going to change our view in this, this quote-unquote hierarchy that we've placed ourselves in. Yes, we are image bearers, but we're also servants. And if we start to experience the suffering, participate in the suffering, and empathize, then we are the change agents. We are the people that could end the suffering. Mm. And that would, again, that would realign our priorities in this creation model, in this kingdom. Very interesting. Very. Yeah, I, I feel like this is something I'm going to be chewing on for a long time. Right. Profound. Yeah. Very good chapter. Thanks for joining us yeah, thanks for, for this listening. discussion. Hope you enjoy it. <laughs> See you next time. Bye-bye.